0: Good morning, morning. if you would please turn to Mark chapter 2 again with me, we will be continuing in Mark's Gospel chapter 2 starting in verse 18, one of the realities for us in life is that we all at one point or another have to take tests, one sort or another. Uh, all of us have taken tests in our lives, whether that's tests for school that you got to prepare for and get ready for, uh, driver's tests, uh, you can even have work-related tests. I had an uh, annual uh, color test at work for machining, and I don't understand why I had that. I, they always passed me by some level of grace. So I apparently can't tell the difference between some colors, but... Uh, There's tests, you know, you got to pass through these. Um, For most people, tests are not a particularly enjoyable part of life, not necessarily the kind of things that they look forward to. Uh, You know, the best part of tests is often hearing back that you passed, and hopefully not otherwise. Uh, Most people don't find joy in the middle of their test. Some wonder if it's even possible to have joy in the middle of tests, and some people might think you're slightly neurotic if you do find joy in the middle of tests. Uh, As we look into our text today, uh, we see a call for us to find joy even in the middle of, of a kind of test. The reality is that the Christian life is a type of test. It's a trial, and this text is calling us to find joy even now, even in the midst of the life that we live, with real challenges, with real trials, real temptations. And how we do that, this text is telling us that we look to the bridegroom. We find joy in our Savior. So I think the main point that this text is going to call us to, and we'll see this morning, is that we should rejoice in Jesus and be prepared for trials should rejoice in Jesus and be prepared for trials. And we're going to simply work through that. In the first couple of verses, uh, we'll see the call for us to rejoice in Jesus. And then in the parables that he gives, uh, I think there should be in that a call for us to be prepared for trials. Let's, let's read our text here. Uh, verse No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. God, your word is very precious to us. The words that you have spoken are our delight, Lord. They are our life. They are the means by which we hear from you and we hear about the Savior. And your Holy Spirit, who has inspired the writing of every single word, is still with us and now in us to Open your word for us to transform our hearts. So would you do that this morning, Lord? Please be at work in our hearts. We need to be sustained by you. We don't have that kind of fuel, but you do. So please feed us, strengthen us, brace us for the day we live in, and please sustain our joy and refresh it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text opens up with a note about fasting. Mark tells us now the disciples, uh, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. This is a pretty normal thing in this day. Uh, Those who were on the spiritual edge of things uh, incorporated fasting into a regular rhythm of the week. Now as far as fasting goes, um, there was really only one day of the entire year that The law prescribed that you must fast. That was the day of atonement. Uh, Leviticus 16.29 says that on that day the people were to afflict themselves. And the idea there is that they were to fast on that day. Uh, No other day was mandated to fast. Though there were different times of fasting as you look throughout the Old Testament. People would fast over grief. Uh, When somebody significant died, people would fast. You can think about the call of a prophet coming to a city like Nineveh, that God is bringing destruction. And people fasted. They repented in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, in, in the case of Jonah, in Nineveh, they even caused the animals to fast. It was a, a picture of a contrition of heart. It was a picture of mourning. And uh, that was... Uh, mandated on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur and it was something that happened seasonally uh, outside of that. In the days of Jesus it became a pretty regular occurrence especially for uh, the Pharisees. Uh, in Luke chapter 18 uh, verse 12 the, Jesus gives us the parable of the, the, the Pharisee. There's, I think they're the tax collector and the Pharisee. And uh, the, the Pharisee, one of the things that he's priding himself in is that he fasts two days a week. And, and that is verified in, in uh, outside of the Bible sources that the Pharisees regularly fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Every single week, there was that fast that they held. Uh, and when Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 6 about fasting, he says, don't do like the hypocrites do. You know, the hypocrites they fast in order to be seen by men. You know, they're out there, if I can paraphrase, they're, they're moaning and they're groaning and they're making it obvious that they're, oh, they're, they're in a bad state, they're fasting. And the point is that other people can see that and then say, wow, that person is really spiritual. And the Pharisees were certainly full of that. John's disciples, uh, I don't know so much that that was their story. They did fast. Uh, Mark tells us that, at the start of Jesus' ministry, John had been arrested at that point. And so perhaps they're fasting that John is in prison. I, I don't know. But the people that come to Jesus here and ask, uh, they're, they're asking, why do your disciples not fast? Jesus, the rabbi, as many saw him, if he is so great and so spiritual, if God is at work in him, Why isn't he leading his disciples to do even the bare minimum that other spiritual people are doing? Uh, The question on the face of it might seem to be an an innocent question, but I think within the context of what we've been seeing and what we will see, uh, I don't think it is. I think it's a loaded question. I think there is meant to be in here an indictment on the, the lack of spirituality of Jesus and his disciples. Uh, Similarly, last time we saw when Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, they come and they ask Jesus, "Why, why are you doing this? Ask his disciples, actually, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And he turns the whole image around. Remember, last week we saw the call that it's appropriate for a doctor to spend time with sick people, right? That's his work. Jesus turns the image around in a brilliant way Uh, And he does the same thing here. Rather than simply accept it on the terms that it's given to him, he he responds uh, with an image here. Verse 19, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Uh, Jesus goes to the picture of uh, the the bridegroom and the wedding. Uh, The guests that are mentioned here are likely some sort of personal attendance, those who would be celebrating with them. The, the point is that they would be full of celebration. It would be strange for them to be fasting. It'd be strange for them to be mourning. Uh, if you're interested in some of the background on Jewish weddings, Nathan's doing a good bit of research there, you can talk to him further. Uh, but the, the point that Jesus is driving here is that uh, at a wedding, You expect celebration. At a a time of joy, you expect people to be rejoicing. The the point is that the disciples of Jesus do not fast at this time. Uh, Jesus is responding to this question. This is a time that they celebrate. This is a time that they have joy. The presence of Jesus brought great joy to those who received him in his earthly ministry. He proclaimed that the kingdom of God is at hand. Could you imagine what it must have been like to follow Jesus when he was ministering on the earth? Uh, you're, you're going through the days and you're watching miracle after miracle. These incredible acts of God being played out. People are healed. and You've seen blind people your whole life and Jesus is restoring their sight. He's taking people who have not been able to walk or to move, and raising them up. He is sending demons packing. They have to obey him. He's teaching in the synagogues, and it cuts to the heart. It must have been truly awesome to be with Jesus in his earthly ministry there. Uh, I think it was right for the disciples to rejoice in that, to follow Jesus. And uh, he didn't bring them into long seasons of fasting. Certainly Jesus himself fasted in the time of his temptation. Remember, he fasted for 40 days. Uh, It's not that he did not ever fast, but he was not following the regiment of fasting that was expected of spiritual people in his day. At the same time, Jesus doesn't lose the imagery here. Uh, He goes further. Uh, He says that there is coming a day when his guests will fast. Verse 20 so the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day now that's not exactly the normal way that the jewish wedding goes generally a husband would prepare a place bring his bride home there'd be celebration great celebration even the rabbis were expected to stop their teaching and come and celebrate with the the couple in town being married but then the people left they were in their new home And the people left. But here Jesus talks about the bridegroom being taken away. And that word there for being taken away is a forceful word. It means to be removed. Uh, In verse 21 as he describes the cloth that tears away as it shrinks. That's nearly the exact same word that's used there. Uh, It is a strong word. Uh, In fact a very similar word is used in the Hebrew in Isaiah 53:8, uh, as Isaiah is prophesying about the suffering servant, it says, "By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people." Uh, I think here, Jesus is forecasting, he's pointing forward to the fact that he will be killed. And then that would mean that this is the first time in Mark's gospel that we have a hint of that. It's coming up again here soon, but Jesus is pointing to the fact that the bridegroom will be taken away. In that day, his disciples will fast. That will be a day for fasting. That will be a day for mourning when he is taken away. Now... If that's what Jesus is getting at in this picture, the bridegroom, in response related to fasting, what do we take from that? Is this something that was only applicable to his disciples who were with him? Uh, or is God teaching us something through that? I think that he is. Uh, the first thing that we should take from this, I think, is the call to rejoice in the bridegroom. Now, notice here the disciples are not called the bride of Christ. Not here, not at this point. They're referred to as the guests. Uh, now, they're going to be a part of the bride, as, as we are. Um, but there's an imagery that Jesus uses here that I think is pointing to some of the uh, unique ways that the disciples were a part of the ministry of Jesus. There is something unique about the way that they are ministering here. They uniquely rejoiced in the coming of the Messiah. They heard him with their own ears. They saw him with their own eyes. They touched him and felt him. They lived around him. They slept in the same house. Uh, There was a special and unique season when all of this was coming about. Uh, God was doing something in the life and ministry of Jesus uh, in in a way that was unique. They experienced this uniquely. Uh, And their despair was... Unique to them as well in the sense that when Jesus was crucified, they, most of them we see didn't, even though he told them, they didn't understand that he was going to rise on Sunday. They didn't get it yet. There is a unique way in which they rejoiced at his coming and they mourned when he was killed. So there is something that's unique there, uh, but it's not all unique because we joined them by the fact that when Jesus rises again, there is great joy there. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples in John 16, 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. The sorrow of the crucifixion turned to the joy of the resurrection and the ascension. In fact, Luke's gospel, as he ends, ends on a note of joy. There isn't even grief there as Jesus ascends to the Father. Uh, in Luke 24:52, Luke points out that as the disciples leave uh, Bethany, the mountain where Jesus ascends from, and they go into Jerusalem, they go with great joy. They are rejoicing at the work of God there. They were filled with that joy, and we should be too. Uh, Christians can be and should be the most joyful people on the planet. Uh, Jesus has died, he has risen, we know the end of that story. He has ascended, and he has secured for us the good work that he came to do. Because of his ministry, our sins are forgiven when we turn to him. Our eternity with God is secured by his blood. Although we may die, we will live again. And for our loved ones who have died in faith, we will see them again. And God, even now, is present with us by his Holy Spirit. All of these things and more have been secured by the work of Jesus. So we have reason for joy. We have reason to rejoice in Jesus. And we also know sorrow in our day. We know joy and we know sorrow. It is right as well for us at times to mourn. We might not mourn, like those who didn't know if Jesus was going to rise from the dead or not. But we still mourn things in our day, don't we? I think another application for us is that we await the return. As we're awaiting the return of the bridegroom, we do mourn. This world isn't the way it should be. It's okay to mourn that. This broken world is not what God had originally made and intended. It's right to have sorrow that many people, even people we love, reject Jesus. There's a sadness that comes with that. Uh, our bodies don't always work the way they should. There's some sadness there, right? That our bodies aren't working the way they should. We lose people we love. Uh, that, there is sadness there. Paul, he's describing the paradox of his ministry in 2 Corinthians 6.10, He describes himself and his co-workers as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There are very sorrowful realities in the world that we live in, and yet we can have joy in it. There is true hope for us. Uh, Another thing I think we should pull from the imagery here, we can apply to ourselves as we think about this picture, is that we are waiting with eager anticipation. We do have pain in this world. Uh, There there is a pain of separation, but as we think about this parable of the bridegroom, it's not the pain of a spouse that has been slain, it's the pain of the bridegroom who is away in preparation. It does hurt as we wait here for the return of our Lord, but it's the, the pain of waiting, the pain of longing to be with our Lord face to face. You know, waiting can be downright painful at times, but it can also be exciting when we know that we will receive what we're waiting for, when we know that what we're waiting for will not be in vain. Now, that's our hope, brothers and sisters, that we will receive from the Lord what He's promised. And chiefly, that will be that we will be with the Lord, we will be in His presence forever. The pain and the sorrow and the suffering of this world are temporary. They are not here to stay. We will be with our Lord and we will be reunited with all those who are in the Lord. We wait and there is a pain of that kind of waiting. There can be a painful anticipation and yet it's worth it. We wait for him. We wait for his return And uh, we are sustained in joy and even as we face sorrow now. From there, as Jesus has responded now, using this image of the bridegroom and his guests, uh, Jesus goes on to tell two parables that I think reinforce what he has just said uh, about his disciples here. So I think the next thing we should think about from here is a a call to be prepared for trials. I'll read these again. Jesus says in verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. I call these parables here because in Luke, as he tells this story in Luke 5.36, he calls these parables. So we're handling uh, either one parable with the two of them together or perhaps two small parables together here. And I have to start by saying parables can be hard to understand. You know, it's really easy to read the parables where Jesus gives the interpretation and at about the fiftieth time you've read it and the disciples don't understand it, it can be tempting to be like, oh, I can't believe they don't understand this. I understand this so well. Well, that's because Jesus gives us the interpretation, right? Uh, When Jesus doesn't give us the interpretation right outright, uh, it can be a little harder. And I think if we go around this room and uh, got everybody's thoughts on what exactly these parables mean, we probably would come up with at least ten different understandings of what's being said here. Uh, it can be difficult, so uh, it took me a long time of praying and wrestling and thinking through this to come to a, any sort of firm conclusion on what I think this is saying, uh, and I, I do think I have an idea of it, and yet I want to also admit that uh, you probably have heard a different interpretation of it, and uh, it's, it's fine to continue to talk through this, but at least follow along with me as I uh, try to give an understanding that I, I believe is the case here. Uh, As we look at the details of these parables, uh, we can compare and contrast them, and we can see uh, what the details are about. The first one is related to garments. Uh, One is uh, an old cloth. Uh, The idea has been through the wash, it's already shrunk, it's done all the shrinking it's ever going to do, and it's got a hole in it. I don't know if that's a moth-created hole or tear or what, but there's a hole to it. And Jesus talks about the way that if you try to sew on a new patch of cloth that's not shrunk, uh, it's not going to work. The new cloth is going to shrink, it's going to tear away. And so in that, you have a comparison of the new and the old here and damage that's done by trying to force them together. Similarly, verse 22, he talks about nobody putting new wine into old wineskins. Again, here's a contrast. There's new and there's old. If you do that, then it's going to cause the loss of the wine and the loss of the skins. And the idea is these old wine skins, again, they have stretched as much as they're ever going to stretch. They're older, they might be brittle, and in the process of putting the new wine in there, and as that fermentation process goes on, it's going to create pressure, it's going to create tension, and there's going to be a rupture. Uh, Jesus is using both of these images that are pretty common to their day, I think, to continue in the direction he's already gone. He's already responded to why his disciples don't fast. I think that both of these parables are, are pointing in that direction. I think they're reinforcement of that. Uh, and the reason I think that is because in Matthew's gospel, in Mark's gospel, and in Luke's gospel, uh, these parables always occur right after this discussion on fasting. They're always put together. Uh, And all three of these gospels give these parables in the context of conflict. There is tension going on and Jesus responds with these parables here. And again, that conflict surrounds Jesus and the way that he and his disciples are at odds with others, especially the Pharisees. So in light of that, I'm inclined to understand these parables as continuing to speak about the conflict that's going on here. So what is it then? Even if you agree with me to go that far in understanding the direction these parables are pointing, what is the new and what is the old? We'd still have to kind of understand what that's talking about. There's the old garment with a hole and the new patch on it. The old wineskins and new wine in it. Uh, I think they're pointing in the same direction. Um, And I I think that the idea of the incompatibility of the new and the old here uh, is speaking of, and I've already hinted towards this, that Jesus and his disciples are not fitting in with the way things are. There is a cultural expectation of how Jesus and his disciples will be if they're going to be spiritual. And they're not fitting in. Jesus and his disciples are not fitting like a patch on an existing garment. They're not fitting into the old wineskins of the expectations of what it will be like for them if they're going to be holy people. It's not working out for them. It's not working out for those who are expecting them to just conform. And as this pressure continues to build, it's going to lead to destruction. Uh, in fact, when all of this conflict is over, this series of conflict stories here in Mark's gospel, by the end of it, we've already seen that Jesus, uh, he forgives somebody's sins. And, and they ask, who can forgive sins but God? Next, he goes on and forgives sinners, and he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, and they're saying, why are you doing this? People don't do this. Later, he's going to be going with his disciples They're going to be eating grain as they're walking through the grain fields. And there's no law against that in the Old Covenant. But the Pharisees understood there to be one. And Jesus isn't going to apologize. Uh, Later on, they're watching him to see in chapter 3 if he's going to heal. He's going to do something so sinful as heal somebody on the Sabbath. And he does. And at the end of all of this conflict, obviously it's not sinful to heal on the Sabbath. At the end of this, in chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out immediately, uh, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So this early in the gospel of Mark, they're going to be intending to kill him. This conflict is building and it will not work out. Jesus is not going to be forced into the mold of what the Pharisees will expect. And this conflict will play out through the rest of it. I think really we see in Jesus an incredible picture of courage. Jesus understood what this would lead to. He knew every moment uh, where this kind of conflict is going to lead, and he doesn't shy away from it. As the Pharisees try to put a man-made religion on Jesus and expect him to get in line with it, he doesn't. And he knows what the outcome will be for him. So where does that place us then? If this is the direction of these parables, what should we take from it? Again, is this just a historical note for the disciples to know that they're going to face challenges? I don't think so. Uh, It is is that, but I I think for us as well, it's a call for us to be prepared for trials, to be prepared for challenges. Uh, The the reality for us is that uh, the disciples... They faced these challenges, um, and and we will too. We are in line with the disciples, uh, and we may face conflict as we interact with the world around us. Uh, Christianity, as it has uh, taken root in a society, has always brought about change, and that change has uh, either taken root and been received, or it's been rejected. There's been a constant process as Christianity has spread throughout the history of the church where there has been conflict that has, has come about uh, as, as the disciples of Jesus have simply lived out uh, what God has worked in them. Uh, changed people tend to change where they live. And further, those who accept Jesus will be changed by him. Uh, It's it's natural for us to expect that we will experience change in our lives by the Lord. I have never understood the person who says, well, I've accepted Jesus into my heart and then have gone on to change absolutely nothing in their lives. I don't think that makes sense. Jesus tends to disrupt wherever he goes. (laughs) And when he's in our lives, he tends to disrupt the old patterns and the old way of doing things. He tends to bring change in us. And uh, I think as well for us, we, in light of this, uh, we should expect that uh, conflict will continue for us even as we live and wait for the return of the Savior. Yeah. I think it's always a temptation for us in our day uh, to conform to the society around us, to, to want to fit in, to not want to rub people the wrong way. Uh, we, we might want to not stand out and yet, the reality is, uh, we, we will. Uh, we will find ourselves in conflict, and we'll have to be faithful to our Lord in that. Uh, and that is hard, and that can be painful, um, but it is worth it to, to be with Jesus in this way. Uh, as we've seen these critiques come on Jesus and his disciples, he, he pushes back on that, and he says that his disciples are are not going to uh, conform to the expectations of the Pharisees here. Um, It's true for us as well today. Um, We're not going to conform to the expectations of our society. We won't fit like a patch on our society. It might not be comfortable, but that is okay. Uh, we, We can expect trials, but we don't have to be afraid of them. I think of how Peter commends us in 1 Peter 4, And we'll end here. Peter gives an encouragement to the Christians living in his day. And to us now. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice... we, We may suffer in our day. We pray that that wouldn't be the case. We don't want that to be the case. And yet, there may be suffering. We can rejoice in that. God's understanding of us is blessed. Even if our society would see us as cursed, we are truly blessed in the Lord. And we are a people who are waiting And it can be painful to wait. And yet we are waiting on the return of our Lord. And when he does, we will not regret a single thing that we have given to him or that we have given up for him. We won't regret any of it on that day. We will not be ashamed for those who stood with Christ. We live in a a day of trial and tests aren't fun. It's not the kind of thing that we want to sign up for. And yet, we do go through tests. We do go through trials. Trials of our bodies. Trials of challenges and conflicts and relationships. Uh, These things do come. We do pass through them. And yet, we wait with an eager expectation. The Lord will return. He will bring deliverance. We will be with him for eternity. And in that, we can rejoice even as we wait and at times as that waiting can be painful. Well, we're going to go to prayer together here as the men would prepare for communion. And uh, if Erica would come to play, let's pray.